But James Smith is a he's a New Testament theologian. He talks about the CNNization of time. The CNNization of time. Um, you could also say the Foxization of time. But that was his term, the CNNization of time. It's the concept that when cable news came into being, breaking news was a new thing. It used to be that breaking news happened whenever you got the newspaper in the morning. Breaking news was once a day, and you went on with your life. But with cable news, and now, of course, intensified with social media, Twitter, your smartphone, and all your apps, breaking news is 24 hours. And everyone is on the cutting edge of being the first to break a story to us. And we're being inundated. We are being assaulted with things that the world is telling us is urgent when really, not that long ago, you would have lived perfectly fine without finding out for another 24 hours. This is the CNNization of time, as James Smith called it. Uh, it's the onslaught of everything just now. Everything is just now. It's urgent. It's breaking. It's happening. You've got to be part of this. The onslaught. And now, of course, there's a little bit of embarrassment if somebody says, did you hear? No, you didn't hear. Well, now there's no excuse because everybody should hear. Well, the CNNization of time. I don't know that it's good. So what this has launched is this question in our minds, and what the news does is it answers the question for us, what is next? And it will always tell us what's next. It's the, the ever-present thought of what next. And then they tell us, well, this happened. Well, that happened. But what they're missing when they tell us what's next is that there's never a grain of hope in what's next. There's never hope. They're trying to pull us into this never-ending battle versus of good versus evil, where good is the news network you watch and evil is the other one, or your political party and evil is the other one, and there's never hope of it ending because they need the story to keep going for you to keep watching, for us to keep being sucked in. We are addicts to opinion. We have an opinion addiction. Once the news has reached us, we want to know, well, what do people think about it? What should I think about it? If I meet people at church, what should I say about it? When I meet my Democratic Republican friend, how am I going to tell them they're wrong? We are obsessed with, okay, we know what happened. Now we have this addiction to opinion. So the CNNization of time is everything is now. Everything is what James Smith calls present Ism, presentism, everything's now, that's all that matters, and you keep looking for the next step, but there's never hope for that step. Yeesh. All right. What we have in Psalm 9 and 10 is a little bit of hope. And what we have is a proper news network. It's not CNN or Fox, just, it's just, it's not cable. It's GNN. Yeah, the Good News Network, God News Network, either one. Difference of one O. So, chapter 9 comes right after last week, chapter 8. Chapter 8, David looks up to the heavens. And he's marveling at what he sees. And he's marveling at the fact that God even considers him. 
There's a sense of wonder. The news right now can overwhelm. So some of us are wise enough to say, I don't want to be overwhelmed, so we try to be underwhelmed. That's not very Christian either, to go through life underwhelmed. Nothing's happening. Nothing's exciting. There's no hope. We don't want to be overwhelmed. We shouldn't be underwhelmed. What Psalm 8 showed us to do was to be wonderwhelmed. To look up in the heavens, to see the glory of God and say, I am wonderwhelmed. I like that word came to me this morning. I thought that's what we should have said last week, so we're saying it now. But here's the cool thing. Psalms 9 through 14 flow right out of Psalm 8. If Psalm 8 is being wonderwhelmed, 9 through 14 are going to guide us. How do we be wonderwhelmed in a world that's overwhelmed? How do we be wonderwhelmed when everything is overwhelming? That's what these psalms are going to show us. So, Psalms 1 and 2 were our introduction. They were the psalms that said, Halt! Before you race into these prayers and these meditations, this is what this is about. And so Psalm 1 and 2 woke us up to this world, this language of prayer and praise that we don't learn from our native uh, population. Psalms 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7, those five were all David on the run from Absalom, his son, who took the throne from him. David is pleading for his life. He's angry at his enemies. He's crying out to God for justice. It's us on the run. Life has kicked us out of our comfy little cozy thrones. It's taken the crown off of us. We're less certain than we used to be. We don't know where things are going to head. We are on the run. Coronavirus instead of Absalom or I don't know where I'm getting money anymore instead of Absalom. This is where we have been as a people, on the run. David showed us how to pray while we're on the run. Finally, Psalm 8 was that breather. He gets clarity. It's all over. And now he's wonderwhelmed. And now, Psalms 9 through 14, how do we stay wonderwhelmed when the evil is around us? So what we're going to see in these Psalms is David is going to be constantly surrounded. It's not just a named enemy anymore. He's not like he's running from someone. Oh, Absalom, we got to run. It's now this pervading sense of I'm surrounded. I'm engulfed by the godless. That's the thing that's going to come up in our next five Psalms. So I think you can see the pattern and the Jews are good at this. They would always throw patterns in their writings. Five Psalms of David on the run. Five Psalms of David surrounded by evil. And in the center, Psalm 8, the wonderwhelmed poet. This is our key, friends. We must be wonderwhelmed to make it through these days. So, let's see how he does this in Psalm 9 and 10. Why 9 and 10? Uh, every now and then we'll couple and go through more than one chapter, but 9 and 10 are actually the same psalm. In the Greek translation that most of Jesus and his followers were reading, uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, actually put 9 and 10 as one psalm. And the reason for that is that Psalms 9 and 10 are what you call an acrostic psalm. Acrostic psalms are ones where every uh, line begins with a new letter of the alphabet. So you can call it an ABC psalm. So uh, 9... Uh, doesn't get all the way through, and then 10 picks up the acrostic, the alphabet. 
So it's logical to think 9 and 10 are together. Now here's what else you'll see as we go through the Psalms. Psalm 8 was a creation psalm. When I look at the heavens, I'm reminded that you gave humanity to be rulers of your creation, a creation psalm. All creation psalms in the psalms are followed by acrostic psalms. Now that's interesting, isn't it? From wondering over God putting order over the world to wondering that he's put order in his word. That's the idea. God's ordered the world, but he's also ordered his word as a microcosm of his world. So, creation psalm, acrostic psalm. So here we are. Nine and ten are an acrostic. Let's go. To the choir master, according to Muth Leven, a psalm of David. So it's according to a tune that we don't have any knowledge of how it sounded. Verse one. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities, you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. So this psalm begins with a prayer of thanksgiving. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount your wonderful deeds. Thanksgiving. When we get lost in wonder, when we're wonderwhelmed, it always leads to thanksgiving and praise. It always does. I love uh, the Christian poet John Donahue said this. He said, wonder is the child of mystery. It calls your heart to thanks and praise. Chi- uh, wonder is the child of mystery. God, how do you even consider us wonder? And then wonder moves the heart to give thanks and praise. I am so wonderwhelmed. I just have to thank you for everything you've done. I have to declare your praise. And so Adonahue finishes his quote by saying, Wonder never rests on the surface. Wonder never rests on the surface. Wonder must plunge into the depths of something. Wonder doesn't just go, oh, God's cool. Okay. Fox News, CNN. No wonder says God is, whoa, God, whoa. And it wants to dig in deeper. That's why it draws us into thanksgiving and praise. Wonder always wants to get the scoop in on something. And so we see, naturally, when we're wonderwhelmed, we then give thanks. Psalm 8 goes to Psalm 9. Then we're going to see three things that the psalmist is going to declare in his thanksgiving and praise. All right? So, First is that God wins. What's he giving thanks for? God, you win. We just read that in verses three through six. The enemies turned back. He rebuked the nations. He uprooted them. There's, they're in everlasting ruins. There are enemies all around us. What must we remember? God wins. Number two, verse seven. Second thing he's thankful for. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. 
He has established his throne for justice and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. So I'm thankful that God wins. I'm thankful that God is king. God is king. I don't need to say who's not king, do I? God is king. And here we have a righteous king. Number three, verse nine. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. If they need help, they seek you. There he is. He's a stronghold. So third thing he's thankful for is that God is a refuge. God is a shelter. So he wins. He's king. He's a shelter. That's a lot to be thankful for. So logically, he's going to burst into praise in verse 11. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Remember, that's where Jerusalem is, Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds, for he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. We see that the afflicted are oppressed, the strong are wicked and evil, and they're they're crushing and steamrolling people. God, what's going on? Well, here, sing praise because he will bring justice one day. There's hope in this declaration. Verse 13. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. You who lift me up from the gates of death. Why? Why is he wanting to be lifted up from the gates of death? That I may recount all your praises. That in the gates of the daughter of Zion, I may rejoice in your salvation. So in verse 1, he wants to give thanks. In verse 11, he's singing praise. In verse 14, he's recounting all of his praise. Wonderwhelmed leads us to thanksgiving and praise. And he's been declaring it. Verse 15, the nations have sunk in the pit that they made. In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. You remember in Psalm 7, we looked at how evil boomerangs back upon the evildoer. Sin always comes back to hit us. So here it's reiterated. Verse 16, the Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. Higion Selah. We don't know what Higion means. And we, but say law, we think means pause or breathe. So it's just a space. Like meditate on these things. Verse 17. The wicked shall return to Sheol. Remember, Sheol is not quite hell the way we think of it. It's simply a shadowy place where the dead go. The righteous and the wicked went to Sheol. Uh, the Jews didn't have the, the revelation of that wasn't so sophisticated then. So they, they, they just, they return to shul. They return, in other words, their substance in life, but then they're back to no substance. Um, verse 18. The needy shall not always be forgotten. Here's hope. And the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. We're surrounded by evil. The CNNization of time recounts one evil after another. But... The one who's wonderwhelmed, who's giving praise and thanksgiving, is finding hope that this is not going to be this constant 
breaking news all the time, God is going to step in and bring us hope. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Selah. All right, chapter 10. It continues. The tone is going to change a little bit. Pay attention. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Who's prayed that lately or thought it? Yeah, the answer is going to come. The good news is this is not a news report. It's going to come. There are answers. There's hope. It's going to come in verse 14. But we continue in verse 2. In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. Okay. So verse 3 tells us that now there are people who boast, who curse, and who renounce. Is that the language of prayer and praise? We saw in chapter 9, as we've been seeing in the Psalms, the psalmist instead is giving thanks. He's recounting the wonderful deeds. He's singing God's praise. But here, a totally different tone is taken. Boasting, cursing, renouncing. Verse 4. So now, what we saw in chapter 9 was our prayer thanks God for three things. He wins, he's king, he's shelter. But now in chapter 10, we're going to hear the ungodly utter four statements. Chapter uh, Verse 4 is statement 1. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek God. All his thoughts are, there is no God. Or the New King James, God is in none of his thoughts. The idea here is that they don't think that God exists. He's absent from them. They're atheists. In other words, what's being declared here is the people in this chapter, they are saying, so if this is their, if chapter 9 is a prayer of thanks, this is a prayer of cursing. And they're saying, God is dead. That's what they're declaring. God is dead. Moving on, verse 5. His ways prosper at all times. That's the wicked man. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments, that's God, your judgments are on high, out of his, the wicked man's sight. In other words, God's judgment, is, it just goes right over the wicked man's head. He can't even comprehend it. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He's proud. Verse 6, second declaration. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. There, throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. What's he saying? Nothing's going to change. Luck is on my side. Oh, and by declaring that God's dead, I mean, look. See if you've heard this phrase before. We're on the right side of history. That's what he's saying. We're not going to be moved. We're on the right side of history. Verse 7. His mouth is filled. Now here's more of what they talk about. His mouth is filled with cursing deceit, and oppression. 
Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. There is no prayer, there's no praise in these mouths. Now look at how they live. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed. They sink down and fall by the wicked man's might. Third declaration, verse 11. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will not see it. So, we think God's dead. Everything we do is on the right side of history. And, third, God doesn't see. What does it matter? Look, we've done this. Nothing's happened to us. We're getting away with it. God doesn't see. So go on, people. Live like he doesn't see. And now verse 12. The, the, our prayer, our psalmist prays, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Verse 13. Our fourth declaration. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, You will not call to account. So forth. God does not care. God is dead. We're on the right side of history. God doesn't see. And God doesn't care. He's never going to call us to account for this because there is no God. Everything we're doing is fine. We're going to win in the end. We're at odds here, aren't we? The declarations of Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 are at odds with one another. But I want you to notice the irony here in verse 13. You will not call to account. The wicked man here is directly addressing God. You will not call to account. Which, of course, I know many of you have pointed out before, the irony of the atheist, or the person who lives like there is no God, of talking about someone they don't believe exists. I don't talk about flying spaghetti monsters much, because frankly, they don't exist. But some people spend an awful lot of time justifying the fact that God doesn't exist. And interesting that it happened back in these days too. There's a sense of us that has to soothe things over when we're not doing things right. We have to somehow come to terms with, I gotta justify what I'm doing. God is not gonna call it. God, you're not there, right? You're not gonna call this to account. It's almost like he's testing God. Call me to account right now if you exist. Well, verse 14. Our question in verse 1 is now answered. There's hope. Why does God stand far away, right? Why is he not answering? Verse 14 says, But you do see. God does see. He is alive. He does see. He does care. But you do see. For you note mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. So Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to accounts till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. That 
is the way the GNN network reports news. Yep, it's happening. It is ugly. But here is the final chapter. Here's what God says about it. Now, as we read chapter 9 and 10, we see two very different people. Chapter 9 is composed in this language we must learn, the language of prayer and praise. God, you win. God, you're a king. God, you're a shelter. And I'm going to praise these things about you to everyone. Chapter 10 is composed in the native indigenous tongue of the world, cursing and renouncing. And so we see them saying, nope, God's dead. We are on the right side of history. God doesn't see and God doesn't care. So we have, in chapter 9 and 10, two very different types of language right there for us as a contrast. The question as we read Psalms 9 and 10 is, which press do you get your news from? Which publication, which network, 9 or 10, are you getting your news from? Chapter 9 is the GNN, and it's giving us the news of praise. Chapter 10 is, not to pick on these in particular, but they're the ones of the world, CNN and Fox. And they're giving us the news of presentism. It's all, this is what's happening now, and there's no looking at the God who will step in. There's no looking at God who will break into this. Chapter 9, breaking news. I am wonderwhelmed with this God. Chapter 10, Breaking news! We are winning! We are doing what we want and getting away with it. And this is happening and that is happening. And people are confused. Why is this going on? And there's no answer except for when the psalmist steps in with his language of prayer and praise and says, Ah, but God does see and he's going to bring this to a nice end. Which press are we allowing the news to press us with? Breaking news presses on us. The question is, what news is being broken to you? Or here's another way to think of it. Breaking the news is what we've called this message. This isn't just breaking news. There's something new. Like, God did this in my life. Wayne is walking without pain. It's a miracle. A modern medical miracle. Um, that's breaking news. Breaking news. Can you believe what our president is doing? That's usually what some major media outlets always say. That's breaking news. But have you ever thought about breaking the news? Breaking the cycle of the news. Breaking the rhythms in our minds. Breaking our addiction to need to know to have an opinion. Which press is pressing on you? It's the language of praise in chapter 9 or it's presentism in chapter 10. I want to know what's happening right now. But wait a minute, Christian. We have hope. That's what's very different than the breaking news of the world. The Christian's breaking news is, yes, this is happening, but we have hope. Hope is not just cheap optimism about things. Oh, but just smile, brother and sister. It's good. <laughs> Romans 8, 2, 8. That's not hope. I mean, it's part of hope. Hope is looking forward forward to what God will do. 
Hope is looking forward. We often look at here and now. That's what the news trains us to do. What is happening right now, the breaking story is all that matters. And it keeps us wrapped up in presentism. But hope breaks the box of presentism because it says we are not going to look at the world. We're going to look forward to God's world. We're going to look above to where his wonderwhelmed glory is. That's what hope does. And this psalm, in chapter 9, it literally says the word hope in verse 18, but we also see the hope manifested and expressed in chapter 10, verse 14. This is the difference. We have the tools necessary to break, to snap, to free ourselves from the CNNization of time. To pick on Fox too, I guess. We've got to be fair. I just thought of a story. My brother, when we were little, we were maybe sixth grade, maybe middle, well, so let's say middle school. Um, we loved to play military. So we'd be out in the woods. We had like national forest right behind the house we grew up in. So there were acres of just woods. And we'd be out there pretending like the enemy's on us and all this stuff. And and so my brother and I were doing this thing against each other. And, and so he crouched down, right? There's this little like bluff and he crouched down to like get in position so that my fire couldn't hit him. And his eye went straight into a foxtail. And I don't know if you know how foxtails work, but they're barbed so that you don't pull them out. Like they're, they're barbed so that they work their way in and the, it, when you pull them, then the barbs grip whatever's there. Now, you can pull them out of your shirt because that's pretty delicate. But when it's in your eye, you're not going to pull the barbs through your eyeball. So this thing's working its way deeper. We got to get him to the doctor. Sorry, I didn't realize until I'm telling it that this is so squirmy. It was just a memory that just hit me. Uh, we take him to the doctor. You know, they do their thing. Um, the CNNization of time, well, don't let Fox News be that fox tail in your eye, okay? Because it's, 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 a lot of us have this on way too much. A lot of us rely on this to make sense of the world way too much. A lot of us want opinions so that we have something to say or to be told how to think about things way too much. So, the fox tail in the eye or the CNNization of time, God's giving us tools to break the news cycle. So, instead, what these psalms are doing is they're inviting us to publish our own news. To publish praise. I don't mean to go publish whatever you think is happening in the world, because you're just falling right back into the CNNization of time. That's not what I mean. I mean, you're publishing a different kind of news. You're publishing the good news. You're publishing the language of prayer and praise. And if what we're saying about people can't be qualified as praise, we probably shouldn't say it. Chapter 9 is our guideline. I give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Then 11, sing praise to the Lord who sits enthroned. Tell the peoples his deeds. Extra, extra, read all about it. We are a publication of praise. Chapter, uh, verse 14, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates, the gates were the traffic. That's where the traffic of a city was. That in the gates of the daughter of Zion, I may rejoice in your salvation. We are publishers of praise. 
that's what we need pressed upon us. That is our press. That is our language. That's why we're here. We have hope. We're looking above and forward and beyond. We aren't stuck in the present. And I pray that we don't speak or that we don't get anxious and worried like we're stuck in the present. To publish praise. That's how we can break the news cycle. And so I want to encourage us to publish praise. I want us to do that. And I want us to do that by carving out a prayer time in our lives that complies with Psalm chapter 9 verses 1 and 2. It's that simple. The psalmist tells us, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart and I will recount all your wondrous deeds. This is where it is. It isn't just thank you, Lord, like we do before we eat, just a real quick just like gratitude and becomes mundane and, and rote sometimes. But this is actually pausing in life to recount all of your wonderful deeds. In other words, it's as if in this prayer, it's as if you are a journalist, you're an investigative reporter and you're going through your life, you're going through your day and you are searching for the clues, for the signs where God has been good, where God has been king, where God wins, where God has been your shelter and you're publishing those headlines. Hey, God wins. God is my shelter. He's the king. So that we stop publishing, God is dead. We're on the right side of history. God can't see. God doesn't care. We are investigating where he's been at work in our lives. Because here's the truth, friends. We zoom through life, especially when we're stuck in the CNNization of time and everything we're thinking about is what's happening rather than, wait a minute, what is God doing and what has he done? Frankly, we're not good at seeing him work in the moment. We're good, though, at seeing where he had worked in the past. Which is why the psalmist says, recount, I recount all your wondrous deeds. I look backward, and that's where I get my hope to look forward. I look backward and see what he has done. So, we want to publish praise. We need to be the journalists. We need to be the reporters. We need to go into our lives. And if we are wonderwhelmed, we will never leave God at the surface and say, yep, he's good. We will dive into the depths to understand what we mean when we say he's good. What we mean when we say we're going to praise him. We're going to look for the specifics. We're going to recount all the ways he has been king. He has been sheltered and that he has one in our lives. That's what publishing praise means. And this is also what deeper prayer looks like. There's, in neuroscience, there's a saying that, they, they put it like this, negative experiences stick to us like Velcro. Positive experiences slip off of us like Teflon. So neuroscience, in other words, has shown scientifically the brain clings to negative experiences. But positive experiences are quickly forgotten. Just whoop, skips right off the surface. And so this is, this is science recommending this next step. They say that in order to lodge a positive experience in the brain, you must dwell upon it for at least half a minute. To which the Christian goes, oh, you just served that one up, T-ball. I can hit that out of the park. In other words, when we pray and practice gratitude in our prayer for more than half a minute, 
the goodness of God, our thankfulness, our praise begins to stick and adhere to our thinking. That's what the psalmist is doing. We can say, thank you, God, or we can actually enter into deep meditative thanks and gratitude and break the CNNization of time, yank that foxtail out of our eyes. That's how we become publishers of peace. And so one of the ways that I do this is when I pray gratitude, there's actually a gratitude prayer. You ask God, illuminate what good you've done in my life. Because I understand, Lord, that I am very ungrateful. I complain and I'm entitled. I want you to show me where I should be humbled and say, thank you. And he does. Sometimes it's as simple as the image of the face of your friends. So what you do is you sit with that image and you thank God for your friends. You visualize the good times you had with them for 30 seconds or more. God brings another good thing he's done. And you sit with that 30 seconds or more. You're visualizing, you're soaking your soul with his goodness and it changes our outlook on life. This is how we start tuning in to the GNN rather than this constant oppressive presentism. This is how we become wonderwhelmed, how we look forward to God's world, to his future. So, brothers and sisters, let's go publish praise, whether it's what we text or tweet or put on social media, what we say on the phone, what we say to each other, what we talk about when we run into each other in the aisles at the grocery store, whether it's at work, whether it's what's in your head, what's in your head often comes out of your mouth at some point when you're just around the right people. Um, let's become publishers of praise. That's how we be, that's how we remain wonderwhelmed when the wicked is all around us. Let's pray.